Again, God, we come into thy presence with grateful hearts. Again, to know and to understand and to believe that Jesus came into our world and gave his life so that we might have life. And that we believe this morning that he's coming soon. Prepare us for that hour, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Now, there were several people that asked to talk to me this morning, and, and I didn't get to sleep till about 3 o'clock this morning, so I slept in. But um, those people that asked to talk to me, I'd be glad to talk to them at any time. Now, I'm sorry that uh, <clears throat> the subject that we must speak to you about this morning is what was the message of 1888. It was perfection in Christ. And we want to talk about it this morning, and I'd like to have you turn to your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Matthew and the 48th verse. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And as we go over here to the first book of Peter, we find in the first chapter and the 16th verse <clears throat> a similar statement. It says, reading in the 15th verse and the 16th verse, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so perfection and holiness is the standard of God's righteousness. And God cannot accept anything less. Now, that to some has always raised a great concern and tragically we find that to to get around that that there has come into our midst a counterfeit that kind of eases it a little bit and then it eases a little more until finally you cannot be holy you cannot be perfect until finally that you have accepted what many people call today the new theology and it's not new, it's old. It's as old as sin. And so, <clears throat> if we are going to accept the standard of righteousness is perfection through Christ, and that perfection will lead you to hold the holiness of Christ, then today we want to find out how we can attain such a lofty ideal. It says in um, Christ's Object Lessons, page... 98, 97, 98. It says the, the true obedience is the outworking of a principle from within. It springs from the love of righteousness for love for the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. 
this will lead you to do right because it is right, because all right doing is pleasing to God. That is probably one of the best explanations that I have for righteousness, because it says true obedience is the outworking of a principle from within. You can put with that Desire of Ages, uh, page 668, that says true obedience comes from the heart, and if we so consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our heart and mind into the conformity to his will, that when obeying him we'll be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through the appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. So it, it is a principle that starts within. It comes from a statement that we often make the new birth, a new creature. Turning with me over to the second Corinthians on the fifth verse, uh, fifth chapter, the 17th verse, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And as we turn back over here to the to Peter again, we come to the first chapter and uh, and the twenty second verse, and it says, "Seeing you, ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, under the unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not by corruptible seed, but of incorruptible." By how? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the source of righteousness, the source of a new birth, is the word of God. And that word is the, is the, the source in which we draw power, because Jesus is the word. And uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so therefore... The Word of God is the source that where we must go for this power, for this new birth, for this purification of soul that leads to absolute obedience to the Word of God. In all of this that we read in Desire of Ages 664, He, Christ's perfect humanity, is which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. And uh, <clears throat> again from uh, the great controversy 623, it says, Now while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. He had kept his Father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. This is the condition which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. It is this life that we are to separate sin from us. And again we read from the Our High Calling, page 76. It says he can overcome. 
in you when you cooperate with his efforts. And again from Steps to Christ 39, Christ is ready to set you free from sin, but he does not force the will. And again from the faith I live by, 118, all sin may be overcome by the Holy Spirit's power. Review and Herald, September 25, 1900, to be redeemed means to cease from sin. And again, Review and Herald, August 28, 1894, Christ died to make it possible for you to cease to sin. And Sons and Daughters of God, 349, it says, He who repents of sin and accepts the gift of the life of the Son of God cannot be overcome. Review and Herald, March 10th, 1904. He who has not sufficient faith in Christ to believe that he can keep him from sinning has not the faith that will give him entrance into the kingdom of God. And again, from Signs of the Times, March 3rd, 1898. In order to let Jesus into our hearts, we must stop sinning. With all this evidence from inspired testimony, we must realize that it is God's plan to provide power in the individual life that we can resist every temptation. Listen, Faith I Live by 219. Christ unites in his person the fullness and the perfection of sinless humanity. Christ's life is a revelation of what fallen human beings may become through union and fellowship with the divine nature. So when to get that type of relationship, we must be willing to be made willing to yield our will and our mind to Jesus Christ every moment of every day. And then all the power that God has becomes our power to resist and to conquer and to have victory over every temptation. Now we're going to discuss with you today, we're going to discuss how that can take place in the individual life. In 75, 76 and 77 of the book Education, I believe we begin to open up the secret that God has of how that experience can be yours today. It says, so far from making arbitrary requirements, God's law is given to men as a hedge, a shield. Whoever accepts its principles is preserved from evil. Fidelity to God involves fidelity to man. Thus the law guards the rights, the individuality of every human being. It restrains the superior from oppression and the subordinate from disobedience. It ensures man's well-being both for this world and for the world to come. To the obedient it is the pledge of eternal life for it expresses the principles that endure forever. So we find now a, that if you, uh, if you give your will then to God, you have a hedge, a shield. Whoever accepts its principles is preserved from evil. And that hedge, that is the law of God. Listen, in Councils to Teachers 454, it goes on. What a God is our God. He rules over his kingdom with diligence and care. He 
has built a hedge, the Ten Commandments, about his subject to preserve them from the results of transgression. So he has built a hedge around you, which is the law of God. In the book, <clears throat> in the book, Amount of Blessings on page 52, it goes on to fortify what I have just been reading. Listen, in a <clears throat> we cannot disregard one word, however trifling it may seem to us, and be safe. There is not a commandment of the law that... <clears throat> that is not for the good of the happiness of man, both in this life and in the life to come. In obedience to God's law, man is surrounded as with a hedge and kept from evil. He who breaks down this divinely erected barrier at one point has destroyed its power to protect him, for he has opened a way by which the enemy can enter to waste and to ruin. In James 2.10 it says, if you break one, how many do you break? You break them all. So when you break the law of God, you've broken down the barriers that God has placed around you to protect you from the enemy. And as long as God has the will, you have that marvelous protection, and the devil cannot penetrate that. He can never tempt you beyond what you're able to resist as long as God has the will. In volume 5, page 513 and 14, it has this inspired thought. Pure religion has to do with the will. The will is the governing power in the nature of man, bringing all other faculties under its sway. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power which works in the children of men unto obedience to God or unto disobedience. If you fight the fight of faith with all your willpower, you will conquer. Your feelings, your impressions, your emotions are not to be trusted, for they are not reliable, especially with your perverted ideas, and the knowledge of your broken promises and your forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in yourself and the faith of others in you. It is for you to yield up your will to the will of Jesus Christ, and as you do this, God will immediately take possession and work in you the will and do his good pleasure. Your whole nature will then be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ, and even your thoughts will be subject to him. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire, but you can control the will, and you can make an entire change in your life by yielding up your will to Christ, your life will be hid with Christ in God, allied to the power which is above all principalities and powers. You will have strength from God that will hold you fast to his strength, and a new light, even the light of living faith, will be possible to you. But your will must cooperate with God's will, not with the will of associates through whom Satan is constantly working to ensnare and destroy you. Will you not, without delay, place yourself in the right relationship to God? Will you not say, I will give my will to Jesus, and I will do it now, and from this moment be wholly on the Lord's side? Disregard custom and the strong clamoring of appetite and passion. Give Satan no chance to say you are a wretched hypocrite. Close the door so that Satan will not thus accuse and dishearten you. 
Say, I believe, I do believe that God is my helper and that you will find that you're tri- you are triumphant in God by steadfastly keeping the will on the Lord's side. Every emotion will be brought into captivity to the will of Jesus. You will then find your feet on solid rock. It will take at times every particle of willpower which you possess, but it is God that is working for you, and you will come forth from the molding process a vessel unto honor. Five thirteen, five fourteen, volume five of the Testament. So, the way to get this marvelous protection that God has promised to us then is to give the will daily, momently to the Lord. And when you do, immediately there's an impregnable fortress that is surrounding you to protect you from the enemy. In Desire of Ages 324, God again opens the the secret of this marvelous experience of conversion, of being a new creature in Christ and the protection that he provides. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of a new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world. And he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must be inevitably be under the control of one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. We may leave off many bad habits for the time we may part company with Satan, but without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to Him moment by moment, we shall be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ and a continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do His bidding in the end. Now friends, in those words that I have read to you from inspired testimony is the secret of a victorious life. We find that God only has one standard, and that standard is perfection and righteousness, not by what we do, but what we're willing to let him do in us. You can't do anything to be saved, but if you don't do something, you're going to be lost. But you don't do it to be saved. You do it because he saved you. And he says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And so as we... As we talked here, it says 
there that uh, true obedience is an outworking of a principle from within. So it is conversion in the heart. The tragedy with the evangelism that we have done over the years as we've been reaching the mind, we've convicted people of certain principles and they have agreed to those principles, but they were never applied to the life. And therefore, we, uh, we have created a tremendous problem in the Adventist church because unless the heart is reached, unless what I'm telling you today becomes a living experience of the life, that we have not prepared the people for everlasting life. If we have not showed them how they can reach this marvelous standard of righteousness and perfection, we have just confused them and frustrated them, and therefore we have been overdue for the kingdom of God for more than a hundred years because of the wrong gospel that we've been speaking, preaching. Now, <clears throat> we have found out now that there is an impregnable fortress in which the Christian can be embraced. It is, a, it is the law of God. It, be, it is to get into that marvelous protection that we are, our part is to be willing, to be made willing to merge our will with God's will. In Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings on page 142, we read this statement. We cannot overcome the mighty foe who holds us in his thrall. God alone can give us the victory. He desires us to have the mastery over ourselves, our own will and ways, but he cannot work in us without our consent and cooperation. The divine spirit works through the faculties of the powers given to man. Our energies are required to cooperate with God. The victory is not won without much earnest prayer, without the humbling of self at every step. Our will is not to be forced into cooperation with divine agencies, but it must be voluntarily submitted. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God, but if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you, even casting down imaginations of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Then you will work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But many are attracted to the beauty of, by the beauty of Christ and the glory of heaven, but yet shrink from the conditions by which alone these can become their own. To renounce their own will, their chosen object of affection or pursuit requires a sacrifice at which many hesitate, falter, and turn back. Many will seek to enter in and will not be able, Luke thirteen twenty four. They desire the good, they make some effort to obtain it, but they do not choose it. They have not a settled purpose to secure it at the cost of all things. The only hope for us, if we would overcome, is to unite our will to God's will and work in cooperation with Him hour by hour and day by day. We cannot retain self and yet enter the kingdom of God. 
if we ever attain to unto holiness, it will be through the renunciation of self and the reception of the mind of Christ. Pride and self-sufficiency must be crucified. Are we willing to pay the price required of us? Are we willing to have our wills brought into perfect harmony to the will of God until we are willing the transforming grace of God cannot be manifest upon us? So, what as we begin, we must understand to reach this marvelous experience of righteousness in Christ, to be transformed into that marvelous experience of holiness that we first must be willing to be made willing to yield the will to God so completely that God has full control of every thought, every word, every action, and then he has placed about us an impregnable fortress which is the righteous law of God, and the devil can never go beyond that impregnable fortress. He can never tempt you more than you're able. It says there in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that these things were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the worlds are come. Let him, him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. For there is no temptation taken you but which is come common to man. For God is what? Faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So that promise is yours when God has the will. You can never be tempted more than you're able. I mean, the devil can't do it. It's impossible. But you've got to be in the hedge. You've got to have the shield. You've got to have the righteous law of God surrounding you. You have to have the impregnable fortress of God, and then God can fulfill the promise. And to get that, to receive that promise, you must give your will to God every moment of every day. Now, what part does the individual play? Is there something beyond giving your will? There has been a doctrine that has been uh, going around in Adventism now for some time. Is that The idea is that you sit in the other seat and God does the driving and he takes you through the pearly gates. And that's a concoction of the devil himself. Let me read from uh, Sons and Daughters of God. Well, before that, let me read from the, the book that I might know him, 130. It says, How can we reach the perfection specified by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great teacher? Can we meet his requirements and attain to so lofty a standard? We can, else Christ would have not enjoined us to do so. He is our righteousness. In his humanity, he has gone before us and wrought out for us perfection of character. We are to have faith in him that works by love and purifies the soul. Perfection of character is based upon that which Christ is to us. If we have constant dependence on the merits of our Savior and walk in his footsteps, we shall be like him, pure. And undefined. Our Savior does not require impossibilities of any soul. He expects nothing of his disciples that he is not willing to give them grace and strength to perform. 
he would not call upon them to be perfect if he had not at his command every perfection of grace to bestow upon the ones he would confer so high and holy a privilege. He has assured us that he is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him than parents to give good gifts to their children. Now, listen. Our work is to strive to attain in our sphere of action the perfection that Christ in his life on earth attained in every phase of character. He is our example. In all things, we are to strive to honor God in character in falling day by day so far short of the divine requirements we are endangering our soul's salvation. We need to understand and appreciate the privilege with which Christ invests us and to show our determination to reach the highest standard. We are to be wholly dependent on the power that he has promised to give us. So that is the standard, and now let us look at the, at the solution. The reason why God can do so little for us is that we forget the living virtue in the Holy Spirit is to combine with the human agent. With the great truth we have been privileged to receive, we should, under the Holy Spirit's power, we could become living channels of light. We could then approach the mercy seat and, seeing the bow of promise, kneel with contrite hearts, seek the kingdom of heaven with spiritual violence, that would bring its own reward. We would take it by force, as did Jacob. Then our message would be the power of God unto salvation. That's page 30 of the Sons and Daughters. And then over on 156 of the same volume, we read this inspired statement, Will man take hold of divine power and with determination and perseverance resist Satan? as Christ has given him an example in his conflict with the foe in the wilderness of temptation. God cannot save man against his will from the power of Satan's artifices. Man must work with his human power, aided by the divine power of Christ to resist and to conquer at any cost to himself. In short, man must overcome as Christ overcame. And then through the victory that it is his privilege to gain and by the all-powerful name of Jesus, he may become an heir of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ. This could not be the case if Christ alone did all the overcoming. Man must do his part. He must be victor on his own account through the strength and grace that Christ gives him. Man must be a co-worker with Christ in the labor of overcoming, and then he will be a partaker with Christ in his glory. Now, so man must give his will, and then he must strive. In the 13th chapter of Luke, in the 24th verse, strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. So there is effort put forth. It means then that every particle of your body, every nerve, every corpuscle of your body is involved with salvation. That salvation is not something that you think about casually on Sabbath morning. 
and uh, it, it motivates you to go to church, and then you come home and sleep and wait till sundown. Salvation is something that is part of you every moment of your waking up. That you're conscious of the presence of Christ in the life. That you're practicing that presence in your life. And that every moment of the day you are aware that you are born again in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus does reign in your heart, reign in your life, and that you would rather die than sin. Now there are sins of an impulse. Something happens quickly. And you respond the wrong way. You know, Peter did that. Remember that even after Pentecost that Peter was there eating with the Gentiles and suddenly the brethren from Jerusalem came and in Galatians Paul was forced to rebuke him for that. For that dichotomy in his life. And uh, we find again even Paul and Peter became very heated over the problem with John Mark. So there are slips that we make but they cannot exist only for a moment. Because confession, when you've made a mistake, confession is something that must come spontaneously because you hate sin. The other morning, I became a little impatient with Betty, my wife. It only lasted a minute, and I said, I'm sorry. You know, that's, uh, I think that we, in uh, I want to say that I've been an impatient man all my life. I want everything done yesterday. And, uh, but I have learned patience. When you've got 45 people working with you, I mean, you, you've got to learn patience. Or you wouldn't have anybody working with you. So uh, I've prayed for patience every morning, and I know that God is giving me patience. And I need more patience. So I'm like Paul. I haven't arrived, but I'm on my way. And I only have one goal, and that is perfection through Christ. Not what I have done or what I will do or what I can do, but what I want God to do in me. I want to respond to life like Jesus would respond to life in every situation. That's my goal. I can never be satisfied with anything less. And we find here that in reading there that in the Sons and Daughters on page 30, it says, when then, we could then approach the mercy seat and seeking the bow of, bow of promise, kneel with contrite hearts and seek the kingdom of heaven with spiritual violence that would bring its own reward. We would take it by forces to Jacob. Then our message would be the power of God unto salvation. So that, how did Jacob take it? By force. I mean, you remember the wrestling night that he spent? He sent his, his family ahead with all the cattle and the, and the whole, the servants and everybody It went on and he, he was there seeking the Lord. He was afraid of what would happen when he met Esau. And he kept praying and praying and suddenly and somebody took hold of him in the dark. And he felt that he was an adversary. And so, I mean, through the night he began to wrestle with us, with us 
individual that had a hold of him. And who was it? It was Jesus himself. And he wrestled and he wrestled and it was the breaking of the day. And I imagine Jacob was a very strong man. They, uh, Ellen White said he was 70 years old when he got married. And he lived on to quite an old life. And I can just see that, you know, he was well-built, strong, hard. His muscles were strong. And, I mean, he was really struggling for his life. And he took it with, he took that promise by violence. By force, he forced because he was not, he said, I will not let you go until what? Until you bless me. Now, friends, that, that earnestness, that determination must be in every one of us if we're going to have eternal life. We can't, you see, the casualness today among Christians about their experience. <clears throat> they said, well, I did it yesterday. You know, I lost my temper. And uh, I've done it a thousand times. I'd probably do it again today. You know, I just confess it. But we should abhor sin so much that it breaks our heart every time we slip. And we determine every time by God's grace and His power it won't happen again. And uh, the sweet spirit of Jesus flowing into our lives every moment as we practice His presence in our lives and then that sweet presence of Jesus flows out of the life to others. And we find ourselves responding to others who are not patient with us. We respond with patience and kindness and tenderness. Yes, what I'm telling you today, friends, is the greatest message in all the world because it is the way that we can be victorious over every problem, over every sin, every temptation, every weakness of character. We can have victory. We must have victory. This idea that we can be saved in sin has, has captured the minds of the ministry of the church. It's captured the minds of the laity of the church until, my friends, that we are so sterilized that we can't do anything. And we must break out of it now. If we are ready, God is ready. Do you believe that? If we are ready, God is ready. God has been ready for over a hundred years to do to what needs to be done in our lives, to pour His Holy Spirit into our lives. But He cannot put His Holy Spirit into the life until He has a pure vessel. And He can't use men and women who have lustful thoughts. He can't use men and women that are losing their tempers. He has to have a people that has practiced the presence of Jesus so perfectly by the power of the Holy Spirit that they have victory. And when God sees that victory in their life, then the power comes unlimited into their lives and the Holy Spirit can come today in its fullness. Because as we read you yesterday from the book of Evangelism, page 701, <clears throat> It says the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church is looked forward to as in the future, but it is the privilege of the church to have it now. Seek for it, pray for it, believe for it. We must have it, 
and heaven is waiting to bestow it. And when that takes place, look what will happen. I saw jets of light shining from cities and villages and from the high places and the low places of the earth. God's word was obeyed, and as a result, there were memorials for him in every city and village. His truth was proclaimed throughout the world. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, and a spirit of genuine conversion was manifest. On every side, doors were thrown open to the proclamation of the truth. The world seemed to be lightened with a heavenly influence. Do you see what we've been depriving ourselves of? Because we haven't had full surrender of our lives, we've only been half surrendered or partially surrendered when there is full surrendered, when God has enough people in this world that are willing to give everything to God, when we're ready to sacrifice anything and everything material that we own, when we're ready to lay it all on the altar, when we are ready to practice self-denial and sacrifice my friends, it won't take God long to get his work done. But he has been unable to pour out that power because there wasn't the people in the church, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that were willing to practice that experience, who wanted that experience, who were seeking after that experience, and willing to pay anything for that experience. <clears throat> but I want to say today, I believe that God is finding them now scattered out around the world. I've preached in many places, and wherever I go, my friends, there are people like yourselves gathered together, some only a handful in a little home someplace, in a humble home, seeking after righteousness with all their heart, and God is preparing their lives so that he can pour out his Holy Spirit, and Pentecost too can happen. I believe that you people have come today and yesterday because you believe that Jesus is coming soon and that you're seeking with all your hearts to receive that great experience of victory in your life. You want it more than you want life itself. And God is now ready to give it to you. But my friends, it means that before you can have it, you must study and pray and pray and study like you've never prayed and studied in all your life before. We must prepare ourselves for this hour. And my friends, I would say that every day that you must spend a minimum of one hour with Jesus Christ. You read in the book Desire of Ages, page 83, this inspired statement. It says it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us. Our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penance and humiliation at the foot of the cross. As we associate together, we may be a blessing to one another. If we are Christ, our sweetest thoughts will be of him. We shall love to talk of him. As we speak to one another his love, our hearts will be softened by his divine influences. Beholding the beauty of his character, we shall be changed in the same image from glory to glory. Friends, I 
I urge you to enter into this marvelous experience of righteousness. It says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life I live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And every day we must spend some time especially going over the life of Christ and contemplating the great sacrifice that heaven has made so that we might have salvation. It says in Christ Object Lessons 163, it says that there's a sinner drawn by the power of Christ approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it. There is a new creation. A new heart is given him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus and then holiness finds that it has nothing more to require. My friends, we need to come to Calvary every morning. We need to look up and look into his face and and see the crown of thorns and see the blood that it came down his face. We see we need to look at the wounds upon his back. Because he was treated as we deserve, so we might be treated as he deserves. And every one of us in this room, my friends today, are sinners, including the preacher. And our only hope for salvation today is a full surrender of the life, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. Contemplating the marvelous sacrifice, and as we contemplate that sacrifice, as we see how much he loved us, how much he loved us, my friends, he would have come just for you. He would have died just for one. And to think, my friends, that is coming soon, and the end of this great controversy is just before us in our day, our lifetime. We will see him come if we're faithful to him. And my friends, God is not going to take anybody into heaven on probation. He's going to take you to heaven because he's absolutely sure that you'll never start another revolution. And the only way he can be sure is that in this life that you are developing a character that can be trusted for everlasting life. If you don't have that character, you would jeopardize heaven. Because, you see, if God took people to heaven on the basis of the new theology that he would fill heaven up with the same problem that brought sin in the beginning. <clears throat> because it wouldn't be long that people would be uh, out in a corner with a little group saying, I believe we can improve this place. And I think that we need to go to Christ and uh, make an appeal that we change things around here. Or when nobody was looking, you would be looking at the gold on the streets and say, Maybe I better put some of this in my pocket for a rainy day. See, this would be the concept of the carnal heart, the carnal mind. And it says to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
For the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God. Without the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. So the only way that He can save us is to have the Spirit of Jesus. And that means that He has provided all the power in the Word that we need to live His life so that we can respond to life like He responded to life. And that, my friends, is the demonstration that he's been waiting for over a hundred years to put on is to have a people that he can take to the world and to the universe and say they did it. They did it by the power of God in their lives. They did it. They put on the demonstration. And now I'm going to take them through the universe with me wherever I go through the everlasting ages to make sure that sin will never rise up again. And the reason that they, they, of the delay, the reason that Jesus hasn't come is because he didn't have enough people to put on his demonstration. But friends, you can be sure of one thing, that he's, got, he's going to get the people now. If he can't find them in the Adventist church, he's going to find them in other churches. He will put on a demonstration. And I want to be part of that demonstration. How about you? I must be part of that demonstration. And the only hope that I can be part of that demonstration is that daily and momently that I'm yielding my mind, my will to God so completely and perfectly that all of God's power that is needed in my life to resist temptation, my friends, is my power. And that I will and I can and I have, uh, have victory in my life. Now, friends, Jesus is coming sooner than your minds can comprehend. I wake up with it. I walk with it. I go to bed with it. It's going to happen so. Sooner than your minds can comprehend, it will happen. It says, She says in volume 837, it'll come as an overwhelming surprise. Overwhelming surprise. Probation closes, she says in volume 7989, closes suddenly, unexpectedly, it's like that. It's over with. And I believe without a question, I see evidence ever all over the world that the door is shutting for many of our people already. The viciousness that is being expressed against righteousness, I think, is the greatest signal, the greatest sign that the door is shutting. The closed door is as old as sin. Cain closed it. The Antediluvians closed it. The Jews closed it. Esau closed it. Ellen White reading in the Selected Messages, Volume 1, <clears throat> on page 63, she expresses all of it there. <clears throat> I'm a still believer in the shut-door theory, but not in the sense in which we are at first employed the term or in which it employed by my opponents. There was a shut door in Noah's day. There was a time a withdrawal of the Spirit of God from the sinful race that perished in the waters of the flood. God himself gave the shut door message to Noah. There was a shut door in the days of Abraham. Mercy ceased to plead with the inhabitants of Sodom and all but Lot and his wife and two daughters were consumed by the fire sent down from heaven. There was a shut door in Christ's day. The Son of God declared to the unbelieving Jews that that generation your house is left unto you desolate. 
Matthew 23, 38. Looking down the stream of time in the last days, the same infinite power proclaimed through John. These things saith he that is holy, and he that is true, and he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, shutteth, and no man openeth. I was shown in the vision, I still believe, that there was a shut door in 1844. All who saw the light of the first and second angels' messages and rejected that light were left in darkness. And those who accepted it and received it, the Holy Spirit, which attended the proclamation of the message from heaven, and who afterwards renounced their faith and pronounced their experience a delusion, thereby rejected the Spirit of God, and it no longer pleaded with him. Those who did not see the light had not the guilt of its rejection. It was only the class that had despised the light from heaven that the Spirit of God could not reach. And this class included, as I have stated, both those who refused to accept the message when it was presented to them and also those who, having received it afterwards, renounced their faith. These might have a form of godliness and profess to be followers of Christ, but having no living connection with God, they would be taken captive by the delusions of sin. So I believe that that same shut door is here today. And I believe that every day men and women are shutting their doors. When the Spirit of when the Holy Spirit comes to them and they reject the message that the Holy Spirit brings. And the message you've heard this weekend is the message of God for this hour. And if you go out of this place and, and do not accept that message and let it work upon your life, if you do not make a decision for Christ and to serve Him and Him only and reject all the influences that the world is offering you, if you walk out of here that way, friends, there's only one thing. The door will shut. And you'll never hear the voice of God again. You'll never hear the knock on your door again. And I see that many people today are doing that. And that, when that door shuts, when righteousness is presented, it is responded by viciousness, absolute viciousness. And that's frightening. Yes, Jesus is now in the most holy place. But some day, some tomorrow, he will have left. And probation will have closed. And the destiny of everyone in this world, in this church, will be forever fixed. And uh, friends, when that moment comes, the darkness will go across this earth like you can't believe. Many of you in this room have never understood what real privation, what real hunger is all about. Some of you sitting here, I'm sure, can remember the, the blitz that took place in England during World War II. Some of you might remember the bombs that fell and the horribleness of death, the stench of death and the rubble and the corruption that took place as a result of that terrible war. But my friends, hanging over our horizon is a war much worse than anything that has ever been experienced. It will be the end of the great controversy. The devil has come down to us with great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. Some of you endured hard uh, tragedies in your life. Some of you have been through some terrible experiences you've talked to me about. 
But dear friends, the greatest experiences are yet ahead of us. The greatest victories are yet ahead of us. But my friends, you must prepare your life, your soul today for the rejection because all those that follow Jesus perfectly by his power will be rejected by the world and by many in the church. And we must prepare our souls for that rejection. And the only way we can do that is, I have said, study, pray, pray and study. Memorize scripture. I memorize every day. And it keeps my mind shot. I'm 65 years old, just shy of 65. And I still have a young body, I still have a young mind because I discipline my mind every day in memorization and study of the Word of God. And uh, as we do this, you are preparing your life. I memorize and then I visualize and then I personalize. And I claim those promises of God and I walk every morning for 35, 40 minutes. I walked yesterday clear down to, what is it, Dolphin? And back as hard and fast as I go, I forgot that uh, how far it was back. But in my mind, I was claiming the promises of the Lord. And that fortifies me. That strengthens me. And anything that happens, I can accept it. If death comes upon me, I can accept it. Because it's God's will. Because you see, when you have given your will to God, and you go through the day, anything that takes place is God's, God's will. In 489, a ministry of healing. Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him except by the Lord's permission. All our sufferings, all our sorrows, all our temptations and trials, all our sadness and griefs, all our persecutions and privations, in short, all things work together for good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. So anything that takes place during the day when God has the will is God's will. And uh, we must believe that. We must uh, accept that. And as we do that, then we're strengthened day by day. Anything that happens, I can accept it. If, it's, if my will is God's, then I, it's God's will. I can accept whatever happens. When... Um, when letters come and, and, and uh, tell me what a bad person I am because of the things that I'm doing, and phone calls come and, and I'm ridiculed and derided, I can accept it, Amen. you see, because I use it as a building block for another character, for increasing my strength of my character that I must have to accept the next one that comes. Amen. And so I, what I've told you in this hour is the most precious message in all the world. It is victory through Christ. Through every sin, every temptation, every weakness. You see, the new life in Christ is not a modification of the old. It is a transformation of nature. It is a rejection of self and sin and a new life altogether. You can read that in uh, Desire of Ages 123. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's 173. But Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready? Are you ready for that moment? It may come quickly. 
and our characters must resemble his character if we're going to be ready. Let me take you for a moment in closing, let me take you in a little trip through space. Let me draw a word picture for you. The Lord has given me the talent to do that. We're almost to the end of time. Soon we'll be thrust and injected suddenly into the great time of trouble. The plagues will have fallen. And the uh, many martyrs will have, uh, will have given their lives. I mean, the horribleness of the future cannot be described in human words. And through it all, some will be in dungeon cells, some will be up in the mountains, some hidden in the valleys, some in the caves. But in it all, God will deliver his people at that hour. For in that moment, the redeemed those that have the life, the character of Christ perfectly reproduced will be longingly looking for that little sign, this, the cloud half the size of a man's hand. Remember that every one of us that die in the third angel's experience, message experience, not that well, everyone that dies in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but everyone that dies in the third angel's message experience. And this, this church will be the Seventh-day Adventist church when it goes to the end. There won't be any other. Some people are trying to tell us we've got to start a new church. No, we don't. We are the Seventh-day Adventist church. If you're faithful and loyal and obedient to God, you are the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this church will exist until Jesus comes. You believe that? Amen. We don't need another church. God needs this one purified. But if you're faithful and loyal and obedient to God, you will see Jesus come. And if you've died in the third angel's message experience, you will have a special resurrection. Ellen White makes that very clear. And you, in that special resurrection, families will be restored. And you will stand with your family if you've been faithful to him. You'll stand and see that marvelous event begin to transpire before your very eyes. Your clothes will be torn and ragged possibly. Your stomach may be empty because God says your bread and water be sure, but he doesn't promise a full stomach. And in all of this, the devil has come down to do everything he can to destroy the evidence that God has, that God has a people, a perfect people that have lived according to that great standard of righteousness, his righteous law, and he wants to destroy that evidence, and now Jesus is coming. We see there that little cloud, half the size of a man's hand, our intention, our eyes are fastened upon that cloud, for we know that this is the sign that we've been looking for. And suddenly that little cloud grows and grows, my friends, until the whole the whole world is filled with the atmosphere, is filled with the holy beings, angels, everywhere you look. In the center of this marvelous scene is Jesus mounted upon his, sitting upon his throne. And at his voice, my friends, the, <clears throat> the rest of the dead, the redeemed of all ages, come forth from their dusty graves. Angels are there lifting them out of their graves and friends there with us as caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then friends there comes a moment when that great 
retinue of angels and all the redeemed of all ages are suddenly the command is given and the that great that great force that God has turns us all towards heaven and Ellen White makes it clear we're going to be seven days going out through space when I was an evangelist I used to preach a, a sermon called seven days through space and friends, just think if we're going to be seven days ascending, the possibility that we will have that opportunity of celebrating a Sabbath along the way, don't you think? And think that there may be a world out there that has never fallen, that will have been chosen by God to be the ones that we'll celebrate, we'll celebrate with. And you can imagine the excitement that, it, that that world would have to who've been watching the sin problem in the great controversy and then have the privilege of entertaining the saints, millions of them, for the Sabbath. Can you imagine the preparation that would be made? Can you imagine the moment when Jesus comes marching through their gate and marches down their Capitol Avenue and you can see those unfallen beings standing to get there their first glimpse of these redeemed of this fallen world and there we come waving our palm branches singing a more beautiful anthem of redemption led by the king of kings and the lord of lords there think of the sabbath the preparation that had been made the, 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 the marvelous table that will be set and then on the moment comes on on, on space through space we'll go again until the moment where we can actually see the reflections of the domes of the capital of the universe. There comes into view the, the, beautiful, the beautiful gates, and there are the twelve foundations and the beautiful walls of the capital. And at his command there, the gates swing open. Ellen White says in a Review and Herald article that God the Father waits at the gate for Jesus to bring back the redeemed. Can you imagine the excitement of the moment as from all four sides of that, lay, that great city lying four square that millions of these redeemed began to flood in through those gates and out through the sea of glass around the great white throne of God as God the Father and God the Son ascend that throne and then to hear the anthems of an angelic choir as they began to lift their voices in thanksgiving and praise and an anthem that we can't sing. Angels were never created, friends, to do what they've done for 6,000 years in the great controversy. And they're so thrilled and happy that the great controversy is over with. And they lift up their voices, and they sing a song. And as they come to the end of that beautiful anthem, then suddenly, spontaneously, from the redeemed millions of us standing there in that moment, suddenly we burst forth with a song, the songs of Moses and the Lamb, the songs of the redeemed. Oh, friends, I'm going to be there. How about you? I'm going to sing that song, the song of Moses and the Lamb. And think of that moments you have looked all over heaven, and you can't find them. And suddenly you, you, you're, you, you go to the recording angel, and you say, I don't understand it. They were such a good person. They were elder of the church. She was the darkest leader. What happened? Why aren't they here? And the angel pushes the great computer of heaven, and suddenly before your eyes come forth the life of that individual 
and from your lips come God is merciful, God is just, God is love. At the end of the thousand years, the judgment then comes to this world. And we find the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven to this world. The Mount of Olives is split in two and becomes a mighty plain. And there the saints and God the Father, the Son, and all the angels and the redeemed of all ages entered into the city. And there standing upon the walls, we hear God's voice. And from their dusty graves come the wicked of all ages. Some has said possibly a hundred billion of them. Like the sands of the sea. And the devil marshals them into an army. There they are. They've come forth not as we came forth. But they come forth just like they went into the grave. The disease still upon them. And they are marshaled into armies and they surround the great city of God. And there the final moment of the judgment takes place when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. There you are standing upon the walls, you kneel and confess. And there are the wicked down below, like the sands of the sea, they kneel, they confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And then suddenly my friends. The fire comes down from God out of heaven. Don't let anybody tell you. That God does not kill. God is a. God is a creator my friends. And as the creator of this world. He has the right to destroy. And this is a, what we are hearing today. Is another perversion. A distortion. But God destroys in love. It is true that we, those people who stand there for that in that destruction at that moment, have brought themselves into a situation where God could do nothing else. But God brings the fire. When we look at Sennacherib's army, 185,000 destroyed by one angel. When we look at the Andalusian world going down in the flood, I mean, we must believe that God is able and he has the right to destroy. But he does it in love. And then, friends, the fire falls and the horribleness of it all, we turn away. And when we look back, there is nothing but smoke. Smoke rolling up into the heavens from what was a world. <clears throat> and when we gaze on this horribleness, suddenly God's voice is heard again. And we witness the greatest event that has ever transpired in the history of the universe because a new world begins to appear before your eyes. He speaks, my friends, and beautiful rolling hills appear. He speaks, and beautiful valleys are there. He speaks, and beautiful forests appear. He speaks, and suddenly beautiful birds are flying through the air, warbling their lovely song. He speaks again, my friends, and beautiful animals of every size and description are suddenly roaming over the hillsides and down through the valleys. And you stand there on this in, in this most marvelous moment, you stand there upon the walls looking down at this marvelous scene and saying, praise God, I'm here. 
I'm here. And then, friends, there comes a moment when the two atoms will meet and they'll go from gate to gate and the gates swing open and the greatest homesteading act of all time begins to transpire because we are not made to live in cities all the time. It's true God has a little apartment there for all of us and we'll spend the Sabbath there, I'm sure, but he meant us to live in the countrysides. And I'm glad for that, aren't you? Because I'm a country boy. Amen. You can see my home. Richard's been there. And the flowers, the roses, the dahlias, the, the snapdragons, you know, I mean, I love my flowers. I get great joy when I'm home just looking at my flowers. When I drive out at 6 o'clock on Friday mornings to get in the air, go to the airport to get on an airplane to go preach, I look back and I think, well, the day will come when, I, when in heaven I'll have all of this and much more too. Yes, it's real. Do you believe it? It's real. Just as real as we are here today, it's real. The tragedy is that the church has lost its vision. And it's not real anymore. But it's real. Why is it real? Because God said so. He promised it, my friends, and we must believe it. If we're not ready to believe it, we'll never see it. We'll never see it. If we don't believe it. And my friends we must get our vision back. What do you say? We must get our vision back. The only way to get our vision back. My friends is every day. Claim the promise that God has made. He said uh, I promise you. You will. Have eternal life. If you give you me your will. You will have eternal life. And we must try to bring the vision back into the church. You see, when you lose your vision of heaven, you lose your vision of a finished work. And the church has lost its vision of heaven, therefore it's lost its vision of a finished work. And we're desperately trying to do things to finish the work without the power of the Holy Spirit. And we promote one program after another program and nothing happens. We, we bring a few, few people into the church and suddenly they're gone. 71% of our youth are leaving the church today because of the educational system has gone the way of the world. 64% of our converts every year leave the church. And 49% of our marriages go to the divorce courts in America. We better believe something's wrong. What do you say? And we have the cure. We understand the only cure is the righteousness of Jesus Christ daily in our lives. Willing to be made willing to give our will so completely to God that God can work mightily in us and give us victory over every sin. That the character of Christ may be perfectly reproduced and then he has promised to come. May God help us to receive that great promise now. Live for it. Believe for it. Pray for it. It will happen. And soon, how many of us today would say, by God's grace and his power, what I've heard today, I will go home and ask God to help me practice. How many would you say that by standing to your feet today and dedicating themselves to God?
May God be with you, each one. May you be encouraged. May you be willing to be made willing to so submit yourself to Christ every day that if we should never meet again here, that we will soon meet in heaven. May God bless you, is my prayer.